When I was around Braden's age, I got to see a science show using things like liquid nitrogen and various elements. The demonstrators wowed us with fascinating things. Suppose I had been 18 and one of the presenters came up to me and said, hey, come with me and learn from me all the things that it means to be a science expo demonstrator. Those of you who are older than 18 could list for me all the flaws in the plan of leaving everything to go learn how to do science demonstrations. How much will it pay? Where will you stay? What about food? The list goes on. But at 18, I would have just said, this is an amazing opportunity. Let's go do this. I'm not saying the younger you are, the dumber that you are, simply that as we go through life, typically we learn more things by experience. We become less willing to try again because it hasn't worked out the last time. And often we're correct. We see the tool lying on the floor, we think I should move before it gets stepped on and someone gets hurt. The last time I took a job with these kind of hours or other parameters, I got burned out and it was overwhelming. Or I'm not going to open up to this person because the last three times I did that, people talked behind my back and did things that hurt me. In these scenarios, we lack faith. So usually we think of faith in kind of a narrow, Christian-y sort of definition that is the faith, the teaching of the apostles, or faith directed simply toward God and what he's said. And that second sense is where we'll end up. But before we jump there too quickly, I want us to pause for a minute and consider how blindness to what is right in front of us shows a lack of faith, especially in moments of fear where we wonder if Jesus has power over the really hard moments of life, specifically of life and death. That's what we see in our section today. We see a few people who respond to Jesus with faith, but many who already seem to know how things will go and respond simply according to their experiences. So watch for those key words, fear, pleading or imploring, death, and see how all these things come together with the question of faith. The passage is teaching us to follow Jesus with faith when you fear death. Follow Jesus with faith when you fear death by disaster, as we see in the story of the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus leaves the crowds to cross the Sea of Galilee He's still in the boat from teaching all these parables that we see in, that we looked at last week in chapter 4. It says, in the same day on when evening came, let's go to the other side. Now, I think it's important for us to note, sometimes we have the idea it's just Jesus and the 12 disciples in a boat and that's it. But the passage specifically takes care to point out in verse 36, other boats were there with them. Jesus sleeps. The storm is so violent that it's starting to fill the boat with water. I don't know if you've ever been out on, on water um, in a boat, but for some of us, the fear of the boat sinking when you're on a little pond is one thing, right? But pretend that you're out on one of the Great Lakes, which the Sea of Galilee is not as big as one of the Great Lakes, but it's bigger than a pond you might have in your backyard. And to be out there and you can't see the shore and your boat is filling up with water, you're going to be terrified. You're going to be afraid. Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat. I think this anticipates what we see with the Apostle Peter when he's awaiting probable death in prison, when Herod puts him in prison in Acts chapter 12. But here Jesus is asleep, not seemingly concerned about the storm, not awakened by the storm. We have echoes here of the story of Jonah, right? Jonah runs away from God, asleep in a boat. He's trying to sleep because he's trying to escape from God. 
Jesus has instead perfect confidence in God, and that's what enables him to sleep in the boat. The next little section, Jesus rebukes both the storm and the disciples. They come to him and they say, don't you care that we're about to die? Jesus rebukes the wind. Stop. He says to the sea, be still. The wind dies down and becomes perfectly calm. And we say, okay, great. The danger is past. We're going to move on. But no, what does he do? He turns to the disciples and he says, why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? On what basis were they supposed to have faith? Well, they had heard Jesus' teaching. They had seen the miracles that he had done. They had some concept of the power that he had over a variety of things. It should have been a logical progression from, if he has power to heal the lame man and to forgive sins, then he has power over creation because he's God. But they hadn't made that connection yet. They see the storm, and their first response is, we're going to drown, and you don't care about us and help us. And then he does it, and then they're terrified. But before they're terrified, he rebukes them with this question, why do you have no faith? If they had faith, they would believe that Jesus would have been able to deliver them. If they had faith, they would have rejoiced at his deliverance. But because they didn't yet really understand who he was, even though they were disciples, even though they were following after him more closely than 80, 90, 95% of the crowds that were just wandering around wanting to see the amazing things that he did, even though they're closer to Jesus, they're still not seeing him with faith. That he is the one in whom we can fully trust. That he is the one in whom we can only believe. Who is this that the wind and sea obey him? They were very much afraid. So there's the pleading, deliver us from the storm. There's the question of faith that Jesus asked them. There's the expression of fear, both before the storm, of the storm and of drowning, and after the storm of Jesus who has power to stop the storm. The disciples were with Jesus. They, were ter- they followed his instructions, but when danger arose... They were terribly afraid. They didn't abandon his words necessarily. They didn't stop being his disciples, but they had no faith in that moment, and so Jesus rebukes them. In contrast, the man that Jesus heals next is ready to follow him wherever he goes. So don't just follow Jesus when you fear death by disaster, but also follow Jesus with faith when you fear death by demonic activity. Jesus is approached by this man with an impure spirit or a demon, an unclean spirit, it says in verse 2. They're most likely now on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, which would have been a predominantly Gentile region. People argue about where exactly this took place. The book of the Gospel of Matthew says in the region of the Gadarenes. Here it says the region of the Gerasenes. Um, A Jewish historian said it was in the region of the Gergesenes. We say, all right, so why the discrepancy in the name? Well, the reality is that different names have different places, and some of it is tied to the towns that are in that area. Um, some people say, well, there's no way that this could have happened because the town of Gerasa in modern day times is, I don't know, 10 miles from the Sea of Galilee. So when it says they're by the sea, how could have the pigs have rushed into the sea if they're 10 miles away? There's a couple important things to keep in mind. One is that if he says he's in the region of the town, that doesn't mean that he's in the town walls, right? Or in the town square or something like that. 
The other reality is that towns move around over time. Sometimes they're down by water. That doesn't work out because of disease or bugs or whatever else. Sometimes they move inland based on all sorts of factors. Towns move around. Um, and sometimes they end up having the same name. And so the bottom line is, instead of looking at the text and saying, here's all the reasons why this couldn't possibly have happened the way that it says, we should say, all right, let's take it at face value. And the important thing is not where the city is. The important thing is what Jesus does. In fact, he emphasizes the isolation of the man from the city. It says, a man from the tombs, verse 2, and he has his dwelling among the tombs. How many cities do you know try to have cemeteries right downtown? Sometimes they're a feature of long ago, but when the city was smaller and those sorts of things. But towns don't usually, especially in this region, they wouldn't have built the tombs inside the city. So this was at the very least on the outskirts of the city and probably somewhat remote from the city. Here's this man dwelling among the dead, possessed by demons, living among the dead. Echoes perhaps of Psalm 23, the valley of the shadow of death. I'm not saying it was a valley, but here's someone who is without hope, facing death, possessed by demons, driven out from all the people that he knows. He's isolated. He's alone. He has no one nearby. Why is he alone? Because no one could bind him or subdue him. Now, at some point, they had been able to do this. It said no one could bind him anymore. At some point, they were able to restrain him. And there are popular concepts of demon possession that on the one hand, that it's somehow this amazing sort of thing that you should look for, and then you'll have maybe hidden knowledge. This would be the direction people go with things like Ouija boards and stuff like that, um, and, and reading various signs and tarot cards and all that sort of thing. That's not the direction that this goes. This goes to, and although a lot of popular things are wrong, but the idea where someone is so controlled by a demon that no one can tie the person down, they're unrestrained, they're violent, they're dangerous to themselves and other people, that's much closer to the biblical picture that's painted for us here of what was going on with this man. He broke shackles and chains. No one could subdue him. And lest we think that he is fine and everybody else was in danger. He is also in danger from this demon possession. He's crying out night and day. His voice is raw from screaming. His body is scarred from gashes that he is just cutting himself with sharp rocks and screaming among the tombs and attacking anyone who comes nearby. This is not an enviable position to be in. This is miserable. This is disaster. This is terrible. So Jesus is approached by this man with an unclean spirit. Jesus commands the demons to leave the man. We see this happening in verses 6 through 13. But that's kind of the end of this little section. It starts out here with what the man says. He approaches Jesus. Now Matthew's account of this same miracle records two men. And we might say, well, why does Mark only focus on one? I think because Mark is using the response of the one to contrast with the response of the disciples at the end of chapter 4 and with the response of others in chapter 5 and 6. Mark does not say there was only one man, but he says a man approaches him. Is that deceitful? Is that incorrect? Um, for the authors of the Gospels to emphasize particular features of the story is not deceptive. 
Now, if he had said there was only one man, that would be false. But he didn't say that. He said a man runs up to him. So there's a couple of scenarios. The man, This man runs up. The other man doesn't. Um, or he's emphasizing just the one man for sake of response. What's the response of the demons? They drive the man to come to Jesus and they bow before him, which is fascinating because what is the recognition Jesus has gotten so far at this point in his ministry? Mostly rejection, mocking, some degree of amazement, but not worship. So the demons, the demonic encounters with Jesus sort of escalate from, we know who you are, to we know who you are and we're terrified of you, is what we see in this account. So they have the man bow before Jesus. What business do we have with each other? Jesus, Son of the Most High God, I implore you, do not torment me. Now, this raises the question of, is this a conversation between Jesus and the demons who are possessing the man, or Jesus and the man himself? And I don't think the passage defines it that specifically, because they're speaking through the man. He is seemingly aware, but not in control of what is going on with him. And so, um, why do they say, don't torment me? Well, verse 8 says, he had been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So here's the man who's possessed by demons. Jesus says, come out of him. The demon runs up and bows and says, I implore you, don't torment me. Now, why does he name him? Because they both know who he are. Perhaps he sought to gain some kind of advantage over Jesus. If I can name you, maybe I can have some sort of power, like almost a reverse of what Jewish uh, exorcists would try to do in using the name of God to control demons. Perhaps the demon was trying to use the name of God to control Jesus unsuccessfully obviously Jesus asks a surprising question what is your name it's surprising because if Jesus knows everything why does he have to ask the name of the demon there's a couple of answers to this one is he didn't have to ask the name of the demon but he was having the demon say his name to demonstrate and underline his power over the demon because it's not just one but many. Um, another is that in this mystery of Jesus as God versus Jesus as man, he is speaking as a man and doesn't is not, is not, for lack of a better word, accessing the knowledge of who the demon is. And so he asks the question in a normal human fashion. Regardless of the specific reason, Jesus asked this question, and the response is legion, for we are many. And so there's this implication that it's, as, uh, first, it appears that it's one demon that's possessed this man. But now we catch a glimpse of why he's so strong, why no one's been able to restrain him, why all these things are going on, because he's possessed by many demons. Now, is legion supposed to be an exact number? The, I think it's 10,000 men of the Roman army uh, that was a legion. I don't know that it's an exact count, right? But it's just this idea that it's untold numbers of demons possessing this one man. So the story has escalated. We have the background. This guy attacks people. He's, uh, he's hurt himself. He screams all day long. He's living among the tombs. No one wants to be around him. No one can help him. Come out of him. Don't torment us. What is your name? Oh, there's lots of demons, not just one. 
Then they make a request. Again, we have this idea of pleading or imploring Jesus. Don't send us out of the country. Send us into the pigs. It says Jesus gave them permission. And people have disputed about why does Jesus give them permission to go into the pigs? Is it because this was formerly a part of the nation of Israel and now the Gentiles have polluted it by keeping swine and so now he's purifying it by drowning all the pigs? I don't think that, first of all, the passage doesn't say, right? So that's the most important point. And second of all, whether his point is to cleanse this region like he cleanses the temple of something that's contrary to the law or not, the point is that the life of this one man is worth far more than the life of these 2,000 pigs. They go, they're drowned into the sea. Jesus now encounters the townsfolk in verses 14 through 20. The herdsmen report the events in the city and in the country. They go into the city. Hey, guys, listen what happened. They go to their fellow herdsmen of pigs or sheep or whatever. Hey, this is what happened. Everybody's curious about what has happened, and they came to see what was going on. And what do they see? They come and find the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down. What was he doing before? He was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains. Now he's sitting down calm. He was gashing himself with stones and ripping his clothing and probably getting to the point where he's basically in rags and near nakedness, wandering among the tombs, and now he's sitting there clothed. He was unable to control himself because of the demons that were within him, and now he's in his right mind. What's their response? Just like the disciples. You would think that they would have been afraid of the man possessed by demons, and they were, but they're equally, if not more, afraid of the man who's cast the demons out and drowned all of the pigs. Verse 16, those who had seen it described it to them. How did it happen? And all about the swine, and they begin to implore him to leave their region. So here's the irony. The demons say, don't make us leave the region. Let us go into the pigs. The pigs get drowned. The people come and they say, we don't want you here anymore. You leave the region. So it's the, the, the irony that they would almost rather have the demons dwelling in their country than the one who had the power to cast out the demons. They plead with Jesus to leave their region. The man possessed, now no longer possessed, what does he do? He pleads with Jesus to leave the region with him. So the demons say, don't send us out of the country, send us into the pigs. The townsfolk say, Jesus, leave our country. We don't want you here anymore. The man who had been freed from demons says, I will leave the country with you. Jesus says, no. He did not let him. But what does he say to do? Unlike all of the other people that we've encountered up to this point, where Jesus says, don't reveal who I am, demons don't proclaim my name, people don't tell what the miracle it is that I've done for you, he says to him, you have my permission, go and tell the people what happened. Why the difference? The passage doesn't say. Some likely possibilities involve the fact that Jesus' ministry being proclaimed among the Gentiles would accomplish God's eventual work that he's moving toward to spread the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. Jesus being proclaimed among the Jews would would accelerate the timeline and it wasn't yet the right time for the, the Pharisees to put him to death and for all of who he was to be revealed to the Jewish people. And so 
Um, but again, the passage doesn't say. These are just some best guesses of why he says to this. But this man who's willing to leave everything because God, Jesus has done everything for him, Jesus says, you can't come with me, but you can go tell everybody what is done. And what does he tell him to proclaim? He says, the great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Why is that message important? When we get to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost, what is being proclaimed? What's being proclaimed there is the wonderful works of God in the languages of all of the people, some of whom are potentially from this region. They are hearing the wonderful works of God proclaimed in their own language. What is the basic task of God's people when we encounter people who aren't following God? Here is who God is. Here are the wonderful things that he has done, and here's the mercy that he's shown to me. Why do, why do we need to talk about the wonderful things God has done? Because God is a God who has done any number of amazing things for people. He has shown kindness to people who follow him and to people who don't. I don't know about you guys here, but at our house, we got a lot of rain this week. The Bible says God sends the rain on the just, those who are following after God, and the unjust, those who aren't. That is a sign of God's mercy. But God has done specific amazing things for his people throughout the record of Scripture. He's delivered them from armies. He's fed them in the wilderness. He's helped them to walk through the Red Sea. He has sent prophets to proclaim his word. There, the list goes on and on of all of the wonderful things that God has done for his people. This man, Jesus says, go and proclaim the wonderful things that God has done. But specifically, not necessarily all those other things historically, but what has he done for you? I was demon-possessed, and now I'm free. I was naked, but now I'm clothed. I was <clears throat> gashed, and now I'm healed. Proclaim to people what God has done for you. And more than that, how he has had mercy on you. What does that mean for God to have mercy on you? It means that you and I deserve God's anger whenever we sin. And sometimes we want to say, well, I haven't sinned because I've never killed anybody. I've never cheated on anybody in the context of a relationship. I've never done this, that, or the other thing. And we're like, those are big sins. Things like lying or whatever else, those aren't that big of a deal because everybody does those things. And only really bad people do the other things. But the Bible says all of those things are sin. He says the standard God evaluates us by is be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. None of us live up to that. All of us have fallen short of God's glory, and so all of us deserve God's wrath against sin. Why does this man, why is he supposed to proclaim God's mercy? Why are you and I supposed to proclaim God's mercy? Because even though we deserve God's anger for disobeying him and not obeying what he said to do, he has shown us kindness, and if we turn to him in faith, he forgives us of our sins. Why does this man go and proclaim the works of God and God's mercy on him? Because that is what a true disciple does. Demonic activity seems far removed from our everyday experience, probably. 
Not so for believers in more remote corners of the world, and in reality, not so for us. We just live in a very materialistic society, as we were talking about. The things that we can touch and feel, those things we think are real. The things that we can't, those things are not real. But if we understand that things that we can't see are just as real as things that we can't, and we acknowledge the reality of things we can't explain, like gravity or like the wind, you can't see the wind. You can't see gravity. It's not something you can, you can touch. You're like, well, I can feel the breeze on my face. Yeah, but you don't feel the wind. You feel the air that is being moved by the wind. We still don't have basic explanations for really simple things that are normal everyday features of life. If we acknowledge those things, but we refuse to acknowledge the reality of spiritual beings, we are rejecting basic facts that God has said are true about the world. Ephesians 6 makes it clear that spiritual forces of wickedness under Satan's direction move the machinery of the world against God's people. And in various places around the world, this ranges from I want to make your life difficult and restrict who you can talk to or how you can worship or those sorts of things all the way up to if you proclaim that you believe Jesus, I will kill you or I will torture you or all those sorts of things. So you and I are not presently experiencing that level of opposition by men influenced or possessed by demons at the direction of Satan who are in charge of the world system in our specific region. And yet, in the face of death or all the steps leading up to it, at the hands of such men, do we trust in Jesus who has power over them as well? And even beyond that, do we see the possibility for Jesus to deliver such people and make them powerful witnesses for himself? Because we, I think, are willing to go to the point of saying make them stop doing the bad things that they're doing. But it is much harder, and only by God's grace can we get to a point of praying and saying, this person who is a dictator, a perpetrator of genocide against, against Christians, whatever else, that person, save that person so that he can be a testimony of how God has freed him from all of the wicked evil he used to do. Are we willing to pray to that length? Sometimes it's difficult to find that balance. Should we, as we talked about from Habakkuk 2 earlier this morning, should we rejoice with God in his victory and justice against those who are wicked? Yes. But because that quickly turns to pride and wrong motivations on our part, should we also balance that with the reality that we should cry out to God on behalf of the souls of people who are so enslaved by sin that they act in those ways? I think this passage would call us to do that as well. Next chapter, or the end of the next section of this chapter, follow Jesus when you fear death by disease. There's two accounts of this that are sort of interwoven. We're going to go first to the one of the woman burdened by disease and then the girl who dies. So on his way to heal a child facing death, Jesus heals a diseased woman. We see her in verses 25 uh, through 34. She was ritually unclean. Why do I say that? 
Leviticus 15.25 said that if you had certain medical conditions going on, including an ongoing discharge of blood, you were unclean. This didn't mean that she was wicked. It meant that she couldn't go to the temple because God said, here's the parameters for going to the temple. There are certain things that were required. Um, if a woman had a baby, she was unclean for a period of time after having the baby, then she would go, follow the thing that the law required, and then she could participate in temple worship or tabernacle worship again. This woman had been barred from participating in gathering with God's people in that setting anyway for 12 years because of what she had going on. So she's isolated and disconnected from the worship of God. She's not been helped by doctors. It says she had endured much at the hands of many physicians, had spent all that she had, and was not helped at all, but rather grown worse. Doctors who were supposed to be able to help her had made everything worse for her, and she had spent all of her money. Her only hope, doctors can't help me. I can't get near with God's people and gather with them. So there's no encouragement there either. Maybe if I can get close to Jesus and touch the edge of his coat, I will be healed of this. And she had probably heard the stories of other people who had been healed by Jesus. And she thinks maybe even in a superstitious way, because there's some element of superstition. If I just touch the edge of his sleeve, maybe power will come out of him and heal me. Uh, This seems to be something of a superstition. And yet it was rightly directed toward Jesus in that he would be the source of healing for her. Jesus confronts her. She touches his cloak, and immediately she's healed of her affliction. Jesus turns and confronts her. It says he feels power leave him, or come forth from him, and says, who touched my garments? Again, why does he ask the name of the demon? Why does he say, who touched my garments? As God, he knows. As a human being, he has to ask, Regardless of which of those two things it is, it seems to be an opportunity for her to come forward and respond and for him to interact with her. The disciples have this sort of laughing, mocking response. Hey, Jesus, we're in a crowd of a lot of people. How in the world are we supposed to know who brushed up against you when everyone is brushing up against you? That's such a... Foolish question, why would you even ask that? Jesus doesn't in this moment rebuke them, but he looks around and sees the woman who had done this. Again, fear and trembling. Fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. The demons bow down before Jesus because they're afraid of him. The woman bows down before Jesus because she's afraid of him, but what is his response? Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Rather than rebuke her, Jesus praises her faith. Disease is something that we're all too familiar with in our world. Jesus has the power to heal, and sometimes he graciously does so. But the important point in this section is the faith of the woman. Her humility and gratitude are evident. Jesus recognizes her faith and does not rebuke her like he did the disciples in the calming of the sea. But there is a bigger question. As Mark escalates these examples, is Jesus powerful even over death itself? 
Is he powerful over disaster? Yes, he calmed the sea. Is he powerful over demons? Yes, he delivered the man. Is he powerful over disease? Yes, he healed this woman of her affliction. Is he powerful even over life and death? Follow Jesus in the face of death itself. Jesus is approached, and we skipped over these verses, verses 21 through 24. Jesus is approached by Jairus, the synagogue official. So, heals the man on the one side of the Sea of Galilee, crosses back over to the Jewish regions, approached by a synagogue official, falls at his feet, implores him earnestly. Again, the pleading, the recognition that he is the one who can help. My daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so she will get well and live. And he went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. Despite the large crowd and the attitude of the religious leaders, remember, and I don't know if we've come across this phrase yet, but in the Gospels there is this phrase, the Pharisees had the attitude that if you follow Jesus and proclaim that you are connected with him, they would put you out of the synagogue. Here's a man who's in charge of one of the synagogues. If he follows Jesus, his livelihood is at risk. His reputation is at risk. He's like, I don't care. My daughter is dying. She needs Jesus' help. I'm going to ask him for that help. Jesus agrees and follows with the man despite the large and, and, and overwhelming crowd, which then goes back to the section we just saw. The woman brushes against him, but everybody is pressing in on him. What does Jesus do? Jesus heals Jairus' daughter despite her sickness leading to death. The friends and family of the officials seemingly didn't want Jesus to come that way. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? It's over. There's nothing that can help her. Just let him go. What does Jesus tell the synagogue official? Don't be afraid any longer. Only believe. Fear and trembling, can you help me? At the moment when all hope seems lost, not only was she sick at the point of death, now she's actually, actually died. Jesus says... Don't be afraid any longer, only believe. They keep going. Peter and James and John, James' brother, go into the house. They enter the house of grief. There is a commotion, people loudly weeping and wailing. Whether these are professional mourners, friends and family, we don't know. But they are convinced that it's done. This is the end. Now we move into the grief and the burial and all of those sorts of things. Jesus says, <clears throat> Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. Why do they laugh at him and mock what he says? Because from their perspective, he doesn't know what he's talking about. She's clearly dead. Nobody can help her. Why is this crazy guy come here saying she's only asleep? How hard is it for you to wake people up? For some of you, it's probably really hard to wake someone up, right? Your significant other maybe is a deep sleeper. You shake them. They still don't wake up. You shake them again. Hey, what was that noise? Even the hardest person to wake up, you can still wake them up, right? Can you and I wake people from death? Absolutely not. But for Jesus, with the power of God behind what he's about to do, all he has to do is wake her as though from sleep and she is alive again. And so Jesus is not saying a foolish thing, but the crowd sees it as a foolish thing. He comes to the little girl. He takes her, the girl's father and mother 
and the three disciples, and he enters the room where her body is. It says, but he doesn't say her body, he says where the child was. He takes her by the hand, he says to her, Talitha come, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Arise. Immediately the girl got up. She began to walk. She's old enough to walk. She's 12 years old. And immediately they were completely astounded. And he gave strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given to her to eat. There are several layers of what's going on here. Again, don't tell what has happened. This is absolutely the thing that you would want to proclaim to everybody. My daughter was dead and now she's alive. Jesus says, don't tell anybody. But we also in this see the care of Jesus in saying, give her something to eat. We see the foreshadowing of Jesus' own resurrection and his eating together with the disciples. Does Jesus have power even over death? Yes, for Jesus raising someone from the dead is as easy as waking her from sleep. Yet the people laughed and then later were amazed, but they did not believe. This unbelief persisted. Let's see the final scene in the beginning of Mark 6. When you don't follow Jesus in the face of death, you are blind to his work. Jesus goes back home to the, with his disciples. Verse, chapter 6, verse 1, he went out from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. He teaches in the synagogue on the Sabbath, but he's rejected. Where do you get these things? Where is this wisdom? Where are these miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense. They rejected him because they said, Hey, you're not a rabbi. You're not trained as a rabbi. What right do you have to teach us? You're just a carpenter. I don't know how you're doing these things, but you're just a carpenter. We will not believe in you. Hey, your family's right over there. In case you've forgotten who your family is, go back and be a carpenter. You have no business doing these things. Jesus responds to their mocking with this statement, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his household. And he could do no miracle there except he healed a few people and laid his hands on a few sick people. And he wondered at their unbelief and he was going around the villages teaching. When you know what you know and the super power, supernatural power of Jesus over life and death is something you know can't possibly be true, you have no faith and you will not see Jesus' power. The disciples feared but did not trust on the sea. The demoniac inspired fear but then came to fear and follow after Jesus. The woman feared at first but then was welcomed by Jesus. The little girl found freedom from death and yet Jesus' family and friends, the people closest to him who should have been most likely to believe in him, did not fear and did not believe. How sad of them to feel themselves beyond fear and to have no faith in the face of all these things that Jesus had done. What is this passage teaching us? Follow Jesus with faith when you fear death. When you are overwhelmed, plead with Jesus. But remember who he is and trust that he is the one that he says that he is and recognize that in the face and the fear of death, he is who he has claimed to be. Believe in him, trust him, follow him truly. Let's pray.
Father, we're prone to question whether you are who you say you are and whether we can trust you in these extreme moments of life and death. Help us to see from these examples that it is spiritual blindness to reject you, particularly in those moments, and that it is faith to believe you even in those moments when it seems that all hope is lost, not because you will always raise from the dead, heal from sickness, deliver from the demons, or save from disaster, but because you have the power to do all of those things. And we should not be afraid of them, but of you. And we should not fear you in a cringing, cowering kind of way, but in a way that worships you as the only true God and turns to you and trusts in you. We pray that that would be our response today. Amen. Let's stand.